0: Hi, and welcome to the Caribou Projects podcast. Caribou Projects is a contemporary art organisation situated in the heart of Bedminster in Bristol. In this podcast, we aim to explore the area around us and bring to light stories that are surprising, interesting, moving and uniquely rooted in Bristol. In this episode, we're looking at storytelling and how narratives change over time. These are some of the themes explored in the latest exhibition at Caribou called Jurassic Moon. To look deeper into how this plays out in Bristol, we spoke to a collector of local history, Charlie Revel smith and the chairman of a volunteer group concerned with the preservation and protection of the Downs, Robert Westlake. They gave us some insight into a local tradition, the origins of which have been lost to time. We also look at how the story of a local restaurant is subject to competing versions of events. To tell us more about the themes of her exhibition, this is the curator of Jurassic Moon, Mary Roberts-Holmes.
1: This is the quote from Paul Nash. It's from an essay called Monsterfield, and he wrote it in 1939. And I thought it was really interesting because of the date that it's written, obviously, and he's sort of seeing the landscape through the kind of things that are happening at that time in the world. It's a field that he always sort of walks across, and there are these big, big trunks that have been destroyed by a storm. But anyway, this is the quote from the essay. We called it Monsterfield for obvious reasons... "'Upon the surface of its green acres, "'which flowed curiously like a wide river over the uplands, "'there jutted up, as if wading across the tide, two stark objects. "'They were the remains of two trees, elms, I think, "'felled by lightning during a furious storm some years ago. "'So violent had been their overthrow "'that utterly the roots of one had been torn out of the ground. "'The other had been broken off from a splintered shaft "'upon which it was leaning. "'Its great limbs splintered backwards over the grass.' this exhibition is sort of following the last two that I've been involved with when uh, me and Jack and Ollie and a few others Sam and Max at different points were doing um, exhibitions with the runaway Fleas and we were kind of using science fiction novels like by JG Ballard and Kurt Vonnegut and they were kind of a lot about how the environment changes and how like humans kind of capacity for destruction When I sort of started with this uh, exhibition, I was reading about art made in the Ice Age because I went to this exhibition at the British Museum ages ago, um, all about art made in the Ice Age and how people would have used storytelling to communicate with each other and that was possibly when human language started evolving, um, when people started sitting around um, fires and eating together and talking and um, singing, communicating, things like that. And you learn more about your environment through other people and their experience of it is kind of shared and then that goes on to learn how you see the environment around you. I start a lot of the things that I'm doing with drawing from observation and I went up to the botanical gardens by the Downs and they've got like a little section where it's kind of set up from the Jurassic period and I sort of sat there drawing trees from the Jurassic period and um, it's amazing I like kind of trying to think about the landscape back before humans were on the planet and how it was completely different. I think there would have been a lot fewer sort of varieties of species of plants and stuff like that. So just kind of like trying to tap into the, the world there. And then that's kind of the reason why it's called Jurassic Moon is because the moon is this sort of symbol of storytelling and it hasn't really changed that much. Storytelling is an ancient social activity through which human existence is explored and fears and emotions are expressed and shared. Our habitat is always changing. How we understand ourselves and events that occur is partly through our perception of the landscape. Our experiences of the ever-changing world can be shared and remembered through stories which are passed on and evolve over time. The lived reality of an age leaves traces on our physical and psychological landscape through roads, walls and borders built, trees felled, buildings destroyed and constructed and also through the stories that are passed down from one generation to the next. Jurassic Moon draws together artists whose work explores the symbiotic relationship between humans and their habitat.
2: Uh, I'm Charlie Revel-Smith, I um, am also known as Weird Bristol, and I do the uh, Twitter account and Instagram account called Weird Bristol, and I've also written a book called Weird Bristol. I am at best probably what you'd call an amateur historian, Um, just sort of got into this purely by accident and interest. Having collected a few bits of just which I had found interesting bits of history or trivia about the city, I thought then I can't be the only one who's interested in this. Other people have also got to got to have some kind of interest in this lesser-known story of Bristol. I think I think that with Bristol, especially, we all know the kind of official history that we have um, quite oftentimes very dark. Um, disturbing history sometimes. There is also this other kind of history that has been running alongside that not everybody is actually aware of. And it's not always like the big, grand things. It can just be like there was this really interesting story behind this plaque on a, a building or a window or a telephone box, anything like that. So you can actually have an insight into a different type of history. And it can sort of tell us a, a bit more about our city in a way that you might not have heard before. One of the things which I've always found most fascinating about Bristol, actually kind of a bit of a mystery even to this day, is one of those things which people might see every single day of their lives as they're, you know, going to work or just going for a walk. And this is the white tree up on the Downs, which is um, a regular old tree. There are dozens of it just very nearby to that one but the chunk of it is painted I think about a third of the way up is painted white and it's done every few years and it's dated back to at least the 1850s that they've been uh, painting it that way and the thing is there's no one's entirely sure why they why they do it why they continue to do it they just know that it's a tradition that's gone on for a very long time We think this almost certainly was some direction marker. It's possible it was uh, that there was like a horse stables nearby or a coaching house for travellers. A lot of people coming into Bristol came in over the Downs that way. So it was like a way of saying you can stay the night here. We have stables for horses. Another theory, which is one of my favourites, is that it was a man on the Downs who... Uh, used to enjoy going to parties with friends who lived nearby and it was kind of a way marker for him to remember his way back after he'd had a few drinks and stop him wandering around the, around the Downs. But the mystery around it is kind of part of the, the fun of it. I like the fact that we don't have a definitive or official story for why it's done. We just know that we're still doing it. We're doing it because it is a tradition but we don't entirely know...
3: what is origin as well. I'm Robert Westlake and I'm the chairman of the Friends of the Downs in Avon Gorge and we're quite uh, an active volunteer group dedicated to the preservation and protection of the downs. Okay, it's the white tree that we're looking at today and to look at the history of the white tree We need to go back a couple of hundred years, and the Downs, particularly at night, was a wild and lonely place. This is a place where no respectable person would be seen. Of course, at this time, there would have been no proper roads and, of course, no street lights, And the only traffic would have been horse-drawn carriages. And we think the origin of the white tree is most likely tied up with it, simply being used as a handy marker to assist coachmen that were travelling across the Downs in those days. Now over the years there have been at least three white trees and the oldest, which was probably several hundred years old, was actually removed in the early 50s and this was to make way for the traffic improvements that were required and was the creation of what is now known as the White Tree Roundabout. Now another tree was actually chosen to become the White Tree but this one was then lost to elm disease in the early 70s and it was replaced by the current tree, which is a lime tree. One of the theories is that over the years, various residents of Cote House, which was a very large mansion on the downs, I think stood on the site of St Monica's nursing home. And it was um, residents of that property that took responsibility for the painting of the white tree. One, who seemed to be a Mr George Amos was supposed to have had the tree painted so his children's German tutor could find his way to the house to give them their lessons. And in more recent times, another resident of Coat House, Elizabeth Robinson, of the famous Bristol family of Robinsons, they claim responsibility for the work and arranging for the gardener, Mr Cates, to come up and do the work every year. There is also evidence that the residents of St Monica House Nursing Home were also involved in keeping the tradition alive. It was thought that they actually paid for the lime tree. In later years, the responsibility for painting the tree fell to the Downs maintenance team. and These are the resident uh, keepers of the Downs, and one of their jobs every year was to go and paint the white tree. And it was just that last year, with uh, austerity cuts and cuts to staff on the Downs, uh, that volunteers from the Friends of the Downs and Avon Gorge took over this annual task. And you would question, why bother? And why is it still relevant well, we like to think it is a tradition that says a lot about Bristol's quirkiness, and we think it's what makes Bristol, Bristol. And we believe it's a tradition well worth preserving, and the Friends of the Downs and Avon Gorge will continue with this tradition. Miss Millie's is a
0: takeaway fried chicken business well known to residents of the southwest, but its origin story is subject to some variation depending on who you speak to. We spoke to local residents to get their versions of the story, eventually getting the official line from the owner of the East Street Bedminster franchise. But before we speak to them, here's Mary Roberts-Holmes again to explain how Miss Millies ties into her exhibition.
1: Well, I don't think Miss Millies really relates to the exhibition, to be honest. But it's just because... When I grew up, I grew up in Redfield and we used to go to Miss Millie's, like, every week, uh, like, once a week. I don't know which day it was on, but it was the day that Gladiators was on. And we used to go and have the same thing for Miss Millie's, chicken bun with mayonnaise. Don't forget the mayonnaise. And uh, it felt very American to me and very, like, big. And when me and my friend Naomi were talking about Miss Millie's and I was saying, like, oh, I never saw one in London. And she said that they were only in Bristol and it blew my mind. (laughs) And then she was telling me about all the different stories that it was like the colonel's mistress went over and she was like annoyed with him, so she started up her own chain in the southwest and I just thought it was just really funny and bizarre. It's about rumours and sort of storytelling and it made me realise how sort of small my world had been as a child because I thought it was like a chain, it was all over the world, everybody knew it, but no, it wasn't. <laughs>
0: someone we knew at school always maintained that Miss Minnie was the mistress or maybe a girlfriend of Colonel Sanders and for some reason was
4: in Bristol
0: (laughs) and that's it I guess, an offshoot of KFC Bristol based KFC I don't know how that works
1: So like most people I know growing up in and around Bristol, I always thought that Miss Millie's was a nationwide, well, worldwide chain akin to KFC or McDonald's. But then later, somebody who came from Wales told me that they didn't have Miss Millie's there and it was only a Bristol thing. But he also told me a story that, uh, that Miss Millie was the colonel, as in KFC's, Daughter, or maybe granddaughter, and that she was sent to to the southwest to, to introduce us all to um, fried chicken.
2: The Miss Millie story. Um, f- first of all, when I I grew up in very rural Cornwall, and so when I came to Bristol, I assumed. They were everywhere. I thought it was like a nationwide chain because I hadn't really seen fast food places. No, it's actually, it's really Bristol-based and South West-based. I had heard that the founders had had something to do with Colonel Sanders uh, originally and that it was possibly his daughter or wife possibly that it was named after. Beyond that, I don't know. It's, uh, no, I, I wouldn't be able to say more than that.
0: It's going to be interesting to find out like, the Miss Millie story though. Sorry? The Miss Millie story is basically. I've heard about three or four different versions.
4: Right, what have you heard?
0: So somebody said that Miss Millie was Colonel Sanders' wife. Daughter. Is that the official line? That's the official. Okay. But it's funny that there's loads of different stories, and everyone in Bristol, like including me, yeah. thought that they were everywhere. Like, oh, Miss Millie's, you know, they're all over the country. There's only like
4: eight in the whole of the world. Yeah, yeah, and they're all you look like in the Bristol, world, like... you know, and, yeah, eight, yeah. and you guys are so
1: lucky. Everybody else has to put up a KFC though.
0: And what's your role at Miss Millie's? Uh, I'm the owner of You're the owner of yeah. this franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so... Do you know off by heart the official story? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 All right, could you share that? Yeah, of course, yeah. So,
4: um, Miss willie has been running for 31 years now. Um, There's uh, eight stores in total seven in Bristol, one in Western Supermare, and that's it. Um, So, it first got brought over by a guy called Harry Latham. So we have three managing directors um, and their three sisters and their dad is Harry Latham. Um, he knew the colonel um, and he brought um, KFC over to England. Um, so they opened stores all around it and he got made a managing director of KFC Southwest and that um, yeah, th- then KFC said okay we want to now make all of our stores have um, restaurants only so enough so they can sit in. So one so that of didn't have enough room, they were going to shut down. So Harry said, okay, I'm going to go and make my own company um, and call it Miss Mellie's. Named after the Colonel's daughter. Um, their cousin Harland made our recipe. Um, I'm sure it's his, their cousin, but I'm not sure.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Caribou Projects podcast. To find out more about us, please go to www.caribouprojects.com, follow us on the usual social media channels, or pop into visitors on Stafford Street in Bebington. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts, subscribe to our feed, and you'll receive each episode as and when. Additional music in this episode was provided by Charlie Morris, and the full version of his audio piece is playing as part of the Jurassic Moon exhibition.